Our second Bible reading today is taken from Psalms chapter 73, and we will be reading through the whole chapter. Uh, and you can find it in your Pew Bible on page 612, um, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to men, they are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace, they clothe themselves with violence. From their careless hearts comes iniquity, the evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was a senseless and ignorant. Sorry, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I have, whom have I in heaven but you? and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is God's word. Thank you, and it's good to be here. If I haven't met you already, my name is Chris. I'm one of the uh, ministry students here at Surrey Hills this year. Uh, John, uh, our pastor, is currently on holidays for this week, so he's not with us this morning. But I'm trying to look a bit as, like John as much as I can. I've got my blue top and my button-up collar. I've noticed it's a favourite of John's. Uh, well, we'll be following along Psalm 73 in our Bibles this morning. So I would encourage you to have your Bibles open and follow along as the, with this in the psalm as I teach it this morning because uh, my hope is that we'll really 
resonate with the psalmist as we go through this this morning and then see what we can learn from it. But uh, before we go any further, let uh, me pray for us before we look at this great psalm. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning now. Lord, I pray that you would use me in my weakness and in my uh, futility, Lord, to speak your word truthfully and clearly. Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you will speak to us and that we will leave here with your eyes, looking at the world in a whole new way through the lens of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is good. Do I really believe that? God is good. Do I really believe that? You see, if you haven't yet wrestled it at some level with that question, my guess is, and I could be wrong, but that you may at some point. I can remember a couple of key moments in my life where I wrestled with God's goodness. And one of these moments came when I first learnt of the tragic events in the lives of a missionary family to India. Uh, in 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons, which I think will be on the, on the screen there, 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons, Philip and Timothy, were attacked and killed by Hindu extremists while sleeping in their car. Only Gladys and his wife, only his wife Gladys and their daughter Esther were left. And I remember when I first heard of that, that incident, I was just gutted. Gutted at what I'd, saw, what I'd heard happened. I mean, this family had been serving people with leprosy in India for 15 years before this, and then that happens. Okay, God is good, but how do I process that? Uh, the other moment came... Uh, throughout my last two years of high school, now this was much less serious than that, but it still unsettled me. See, since I was a kid, I had been taught that God is good to his people. Heard that all through Sunday school, all through youth group, all through my life. Yet following him in years 11 and 12, was, I reckon, one of the loneliest experiences of my life. God is good, I was getting told on Sundays. Oh yeah, but why do I lose all my friends when I follow him? God is good, I was getting told. So why do the godless kids seem to have all the fun in life? You see, God is good. We are taught this each week in church. But do we really believe it? Do we believe it when we hear of our overseas brothers and sisters being persecuted? Or when we ourselves experience what we see in our own lives as some form of injustice, oppression or misery, will we believe it then? You see, this is the question the psalmist is wrestling with in Psalm 73. God is good, 
Do I believe that? And what we see in the psalmist's journey this morning is something of a night and day change in perspective. See, he starts by looking at his world through his eyes. He ends by looking at his world through God's eyes. Through his eyes, life as a follower of God is glib. It's miserable. But when he comes to see through his his life through God's eyes, well, he realizes it's actually glorious. So we're going to think about these two ways the psalmist looks at his life. His eyes, God's eyes. And then we'll think about what we can learn from this psalm also. So first, life viewed through his eyes. When the psalmist looks at his life through his eyes, things just don't seem right. God is good. He is still prepared to own that statement in verse 1. But boy, is that getting harder and harder to believe. You see, he's thinking at the start of this psalm, God, I thought you were supposed to be good to the pure of heart, to those people who were devoted to you. But that's not what I'm seeing with my eyes. Oh, when I look around, it's not, it's not the pure of heart who are being blessed. It's the wicked. It's the arrogant. They're the ones getting the health, the wealth, the wisdom. This isn't right. Look at verses 1 to 3. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure of heart. But as for me... My feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, we've probably all felt this at some level, I think. We, it's kind of hard not to. You know, God is good, but why do so many drug lords, for example, how come they're allowed to live the high life for so long? God is good, but... But that deceptive, deceptive work colleague who cuts all the corners, he's the one that gets the promotion, not me? God is good. But those kids in school who laugh at me for being a Christian, they're the ones that have all the fun, all the friends, the good grades? God is good. Do I believe it? Now, I don't know if you've ever been so frustrated by what you see as an injustice in your workplace, for example, that you get home from work, you're frustrated, you plonk yourself down in front of your laptop late at night and you type up an email unloading on your boss all the injustices you see and how he's running the workplace. Well, that's kind of similar to what's going on in verses 4 to 12 in this psalm. The psalmist essentially presents God with a list of issues, of problems with how he sees the world being run. And then he clicks send to his boss, God. So what does his list say? Well, problem number one, the wicked live carefree. He's thinking, God, I know you're good, But why do you allow the wicked to go through life without a care in the world? 
I mean, is it too much to ask for you to knock off a couple of them with the flu or something? I mean, why are they always so healthy? Why, why are they always so wealthy? It doesn't make sense. I mean, they don't deserve it. These people are full of themselves. They're immoral. I've seen them do evil things. I've seen them be callous. What is going on? Look at verses 4 to 7. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves in violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. God is good. Do I believe it? when I see the wicked living carefree. But things only get worse with problem two on the list. The wicked are allowed so much power, but are so abusive with it. The psalmist is thinking, God, why are these people allowed to have so much power, to have such a following? Uh, Don't you see the way they use their positions to abuse and oppress other people? I mean, these people act like little gods. Why is this so? Look at verses 8 to 10. They scoff, they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And I think we see this kind of abuse of power kind of all sorts of levels in our world today. I've heard one too many stories of international students, for example, in my former church who are often oppressed both financially and emotionally in their part-time jobs while studying in Australia. Often they weren't aware of their rights as employees or just didn't tap into them. And because of this, their, their employers took advantage of them. And they so often got away with it. God is good, do I believe it, in the face of unjust abuse and oppression? Butter brachets up even more with problem three. The wicked mock God and he doesn't seem to care. I mean, the psalmist is probably thinking at this point, this is infuriating. I'm so confused by what's going on here. God, I know you're powerful. I know you see all, I know you know all. Why are you just sitting there letting, sitting there taking this? Why are you letting them mock you like some kind of senile old man, so blind and unaware of reality that they can just get away with anything? I mean, look at what they're saying in verse 11. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Uh, I remember being in the city a number of years ago and seeing a poster uh, for Catherine Devaney's stand-up comedy show being advertised. And you know what the title of her show was? It was called God is Rubbish. She used another word. God is Rubbish. That's the good news. And her show essentially was probably, I'd say, you know, an hour long. And it was an hour long God bash, a complete mocking of the Christian God. And 
when you hear that, if you were to see that poster, I wonder how it would make you feel. Because I suspect, for many of us, that kind of stuff, we're sort of desensitised to it a bit now. We sort of think, oh, that's just the world for you. But just imagine it wasn't God's name being mocked in that comedy show. Imagine if it was your wife's name, if it was your husband's name, if it was your child's name being mocked for a good 45 minutes to an hour, everybody laughing. Well, I think you'd be outraged. This is the God of the universe being mocked. When the psalmist sees that kind of thing happening in his day, he is rightly outraged. God, how do people get away with this, let alone making a li- make a living off it? God is good. Do I believe it when I see mockers getting off the hook? And so the psalmist finishes his list of complaints against God with a single line in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, God. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Send. Well, having unloaded on God with his list of problems and frustrations, it's kind of like the psalmist just kind of slumps back in his chair at this point. Exhausted and depressed with what he sees with his eyes as he looks out on his world. And he's thinking at this point, what is the point? What's the point of battling through life, doing things God's way, when the way of the wicked just seems so easy, so comfortable? And maybe we've felt this at some level as well, right? It's just so much harder to be honest than to just lie. I mean, I see other people at that Coles checkout working the system to get their pink lady apples for a bit cheaper. Why can't I do that? It's so hard, much harder to be kind than it is to be spiteful when you get hurt by someone. So much harder to be sexually pure than to just give in to your desires like everyone else seems to be doing. God is good. Do I believe it enough to stick it out with him? You see, look at what the psalmist says in verses 13 to 16 as he wrestles through all this. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. You see, he's honest, isn't he? Life through my eyes is just oppressive. It's depressing. Prior to entering Bible college, I worked as an orthoptist. Uh, It's kind of like an underpaid optometrist, but you can ask me about it later if you want more details. 
Now, look, what I loved about this job, though, one of the most exciting parts was working with severe cataract patients. Now, I'm sure a couple of you out there might have some cataracts yourself and want to talk to me about it afterwards. Go for it. I'm happy to, happy to chat it out with you. You see, I loved watching these severe cataract patients react to the massive change in vision following their surgery. The change was like night and day. Before their surgery, I would ask them, oh, if you could just read down the chart as far as you can, please. And sometimes they would literally say to me, what chart are you talking about? I don't see a chart. That was bad vision. But you see, after the operation, they would be saying, wow, I never knew vision could be this clear. I never knew colours could be so clear. Pink, magenta, all so clear. It was like night and day for these patients. And that's the kind of change that goes on in here with this psalmist. Night and day. Life through his eyes was bleak. You see, he found it hard to, to see that God could really be good. Where's the chart? I don't see it. But then he starts seeing things through God's eyes. And now he's got 2020 vision. And that's what we're going to look at now. Life seen through God's eyes. Uh, the moment that changes everything for this guy comes when he enters the sanctuary of God. Frustrated, longing for answers, he decides to strap on his sandals and go straight to God. The sanctuary of God or the, the temple, that was the place in the Old Testament where God's people met with God. Now, we're not told how he gets all the answers to his problems, how God reveals it all to him. All we know is that things become clear for this guy when he actually goes to God. Look at verses 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, life through my eyes, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Then I started to see things through God's eyes. You see, often we like to go everywhere but God when we struggle with him. But notice where the psalmist doesn't go in his struggle. Well, first of all, he just doesn't go down the street to the movies to fill his life up with entertainment so he can just be distracted out of having to deal with the issue. Or he doesn't go down to the library either to look for some kind of self-help book on positive thinking. And he certainly doesn't just go and join the masses who had already given up on God in order to take a slice of the carefree life. No, he goes straight to the temple to deal directly with God. And that's actually when he does that that he starts to get answers. He starts to see things differently. There he starts to say, God is good, and boy, do I believe it. 
So what did he now see? Well, with God's 2020 vision, he now sees that those people, that people who reject God will themselves actually be rejected by God. He's thinking, man, I once envied the wicked. I once wanted what those guys had, but actually what they have is God's judgment always looming over their heads. Always. And they don't know it. In an instant, they will be taken from this life. And then they'll have to stand completely guilty and exposed before the living God, the one that they've rejected, the one that they've mocked. I don't want that. Look at what he says in verses 18 to 20. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. He sees through God's eyes that people's wickedness and rejection of God will be brought to account. God is good because he will judge the wicked. He will judge sin. Now, if I had to be honest, one of the reasons I think I stayed Christian in my high school years, because this part I really believed, right? I really believed in God's judgment on those who reject him. I rightly understood that hell was real and I did not want to go there. And so if trusting in God and living his way meant, you know, no drinking, some loss of friends, I suppose I could endure that. Now, while I was right to see God's judgment as real, something I had to take very seriously... I do think that I was missing something else. I don't think I saw as clearly the goodness of God's presence in my life while I had that judgment also in mind. You see, I got that I had to endure living for God, but I didn't fully get that I could enjoy living with God even through those tough years. But you see, this is what the psalmist gets here. He now enjoys life with God, even in the context of his hardships. He knows that if he is trusting God, well, he has God. And if he has God, he has everything. In fact, this revelation hits him with such power that he compares his former way of thinking kind of like some dumb animal that just keeps walking into a tree. Look at what he says in verses 21 to 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. You see, through his eyes, he was thinking, where is God in all of this? Does he even care about me? 
The wicked have it all. I have nothing. But through God's eyes, he now sees, actually, they kind of have nothing, and I have everything, because I have God. And he is here in all of this, closer than I could have ever imagined. You see, I can say... God is holding me by my right hand, guiding me through life. Which one of them can say that? I can say that when I die, he won't let me out of his sight for a minute. But he'll be there bringing me into into eternity with him, into eternal paradise. Which of them can say that? You see, look at what he says in verses 23 to 24. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. God is with him now. God will be with him forever. He is never alone. See, it's so easy to get caught up in the short time we have on earth when you actually step back and consider eternity, it's kind of hard to look at this world the same way. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was one of the initial preachers during the early stages of the Great Awakening in the US almost 300 years ago. Now, the Great Awakening was in a time in US history when countless citizens were becoming Christian. They were hearing the message of the Lord Jesus and responding to him in saving faith. Now, what was Jonathan Edwards' prayer throughout this movement of the Holy Spirit? Well, it was simple. It's up there on the screen. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. You see, Jonathan Edwards wanted to go through life with eternity before him. And that was what he wanted for the people of the colonies as well. He wanted them to look beyond the temporal concerns of their lives, their work, their, their holidays, their investment plans. He wanted them to see beyond those things and gaze into the expanse of their eternity. Where am I going to spend it? He wanted them to see how awful it would be to spend an eternity separated from God, but how wonderful it is to know that he holds you now and will care for you throughout that endless expanse of time that you will be with him forever. Somehow, in some way, the Lord stamped eternity onto the eyeballs of our psalmist when he goes into the sanctuary of God. Now all he can see is God. All he longs for is God. He's now thinking, they just have stuff. I have God. Their pleasures last only a bleep in eternity, My joy with the living God lasts forever. You see, through his eyes, 
Initially, he was a bit confused and reluctant to kind of speak his mind to anyone. If you notice that back in verse 15. But now through God's eyes, he cannot keep his mouth shut. He can't stop himself from speaking about how good it is to be near God. Look at verses 25 to 27. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Oh, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. You see, looking through his life, all he saw was the riches of those who reject God and the poverty of those people like him who followed God. But looking through God's eyes, all we can now see is the unimaginable riches of those who follow God like him and the extreme poverty of those who don't. God is good, and now he really believes it. So what does this psalm and this guy's journey teach us? Well, I think it gives us a lesson in perspectives. Will we live life through our eyes, or will we live it through God's eyes? Life through our eyes, or life through God's eyes? Let's think about Life lived just through our eyes for a moment, where our concept of, goodness, of God's goodness is kind of understood on the basis of how many goodies we can get out of this life here and now. Well, the psalmist is telling us here that if we live life only looking through our worldly eyes, it's going to end up being one of frustration, one of dissatisfaction, and one of envy, because we'll kind of never have enough. You see, we might come to church each week and say along with everyone else that God is good, but we're going to struggle to believe that if all we can see is how much God is being stingy with us, short-changing us out of the pleasures that so many other people get to enjoy. You know, God, why do so many other people in my workplace get noticed by the boss, yet he always overlooks my hard work and diligence? God, why am I still single when so many of my friends are getting married? God, why am I always hit with the health problems when my pagan chain-smoking neighbour is as fit as an ox? God is good. But if we only look through our worldly eyes, we're going to struggle to see it. Now, I reckon there has to be a few of you out there this morning that are probably feeling maybe a bit short-changed by God. And how do I know that? Well, because I know my own heart. I know how prone I am to looking at life through my worldly eyes. You see, 
When I start to look through the world through my eyes, what do I see? Well, I see the fact that I don't have a house yet while so many of my peers do. I see the fact that I don't really know what my future holds while so many other people seem to be living this settled life. I see the fact that so many other people live this nine-to-five, stress-free life, while my life always seems a bit packed, a bit unpredictable. Now, I know you think a lot of that sounds petty, but isn't that the point? It's easy to be petty when we're just looking at life through our eyes. That's why it's so important that we continually keep going to God like the psalmist does in verse 17. That we keep getting a reality check on life, an eye check up, if you will. That we make sure church is important. Growth group, if we can make it, is important. One-to-one Bible reading and prayer with a trusted friend, that we're speaking to one another about the gospel after church. Those things are important because those are the moments where God speaks to us primarily in our struggle. Life through our eyes only is actually quite frustrating. So how can we live life through God's eyes? Well, for those of you who are struggling with God for whatever reason this morning... And what you need to hear is that it is, it's actually okay to struggle with him. And that's what this psalm actually shows us. It's okay to struggle. But you see, what this psalm also shows us is that when we struggle, we must not walk away from the central premise that God is good. You see, the psalmist wrestled with that notion. But from verse 1 onwards, he never walks away from it. He holds it before him the whole time he's struggling. And you see, we have even more reason than he does to hold God's goodness before us, even in our struggles. Because we have come to know God's goodness in the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ, we are reminded that we who are often much like the wicked described in this passage, proud, selfish, arrogant, we have received forgiveness when we trust in Christ. We have been been given eternal life through the death of Jesus. Only a supremely good God would send his own son to save sinners. It's through seeing the wonder of the cross that we will start to see the world through God's eyes. When we see injustice and terrible things happening, it will be a struggle. But we can still see that God is still good when the gospel is before us. We can still know that Jesus is bringing every form of wickedness to account, either at the final judgment ultimately, or as people bring their sin before him in faith and repentance at the foot of the cross, and he takes that punishment himself. 
through God's eyes, we can still acknowledge that joblessness, loneliness, poor health, they're still difficult. But we can say through God's eyes that God has given me something far greater than a job or a spouse or a few more years of good health. God has given me Christ. Christ now holds me by his right hand. Christ guides me through life. And Christ will raise me from the dead and bring me into eternity with him. Remember Christ's words in Mark 8 that we heard earlier? Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You see, even something as simple as our kinder drop-off and pick-up can be drastically affected depending on which eyes I, tend, I choose to look through in that moment. For example, if I go to kinder and drop off Cammy, and I'm only looking through my eyes, it's easy to slip back into that petty comparison and frustration. Oh, those parents, they seem to have such well-behaved children. Why do mine always go and harass the guinea pigs first thing? Those parents seem to be so comfortable in their homes, which they own. Why do we have to live in crummy old rentals? I wish I had cool clothes like that hipster-looking dad. I wish I had his nice SUV that he rolls up in. You see, for me, before I go to a place, even like the kinder drop-off or pick-up, I need to be reminding myself to put on God's eyes when I go there. Because you see, God's eyes actually help me to walk through the kinder gates, appreciating the depth of my riches in Christ and actually the absolute poverty of the other parents there. Going to kinder with God's eyes means that my resentment or my envy actually turns into thankfulness and compassion. And so I can say to myself when I'm there, God is good. I wonder if they believe it. Uh, at the start of the talk, I mentioned um, the story of the Staines family. Uh, that hit me when I first heard it, but I was encouraged to learn uh, that after the death of Graham and the boys, Gladys and Esther actually chose to stay on in that region, in India, and continue the work that they were doing with uh, leprosy people. And a number of years after the event, uh, Gladys uh, said this in an interview. She said, I feel sad that I do not have my husband to support me, to guard me, but these are just momentary emotions of sadness, which also fill me with great hope 
the hope of heaven and of being reunited with my husband and children in paradise and seeing the Father face to face. This guarantee fills me with great consolation. These sisters of mine in Kandamahal, who have sacrificed their husbands for the sake of Christ, I tell them, be strong, stay strong, and Christ will be your support, your companion, your guide, your strength. He's got me by my right hand. Whom have I in heaven but you? See, these are the words of someone who looks at life through God's eyes. These are the words who someone, of someone who knows Jesus, has her for eternity. These are the words of someone who says, God is good, and I believe it. Let's pray.